Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's the week ending Friday, the 3rd of November. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. Britain is braced. The full force of Storm Kieron is already being unleashed. People not even really over the worst of Storm Babette. And now we've got Kieran battering us as well. First British nationals have crossed the Rafa border crossing from Gaza. The Jabalaya refugee camp was struck. This is the largest refugee camp in Gaza. And we're seeing images showing the entire neighbourhood flattened. More than half a century after the Beatles broke up, the track billed as their final song has been released. I'm joined by Tortoise's climate editor, Chievan Vasagar. Chievan, good to see you. How are you? Hi, James. All well, thanks. Very good. I'm also joined by Chloe Hachimotheo. While I was off on half term, Chloe was more or less locked in this podcast studio, trying to do as difficult a job as there is, which is making sense of what's happening in Gaza and in particular inside Hamas. Um, I'm saying this as an elaborate plug for The Shadow, the investigation and attempt to understand the life of Mohammed Daif. How was that? Well, you tasked me with trying to make a half-hour documentary about somebody nobody knows anything about. So uh, you came in at forty-five minutes. <laughs> I know, I know. So it was fascinating because uh, it was a profile of this man, Mohammed Dave. Nobody's seen him for at least twenty years. He's the head of the Al Qassam Brigades, the military wing of Hamas. And the thing that's the most fascinating for me is how the military wing seems to have taken over Hamas and sidelined the political wing of Hamas, a lot of whom are now based outside of Gaza in the Gulf, and a lot of whom admitted they had no idea this attack was going to go down on October 7th when it did. One of the things that I thought was so interesting was trying to map the military operation with inside Hamas, inside Gaza, how that links to the political operation inside Gaza, how that links to the Palestinian population of Gaza, and how that links then to the Hamas and broader Palestinian movement outside of Gaza and outside of Israel. I suspect we'll come back to that. But I also want to introduce Katie Searle. Katie, hello. Hi, James. So nice to see you again. So good to see you. So if you're listening to this and you hear a note of uh, nostalgia and excitement (laughs) in our voices, there's a reason for that. Katie and I worked together at the BBC. I almost never got to see her in person because every morning she would be sitting in the Millbank offices of the BBC uh, trying to marshal the political coverage of the whole of the BBC. And I always thought to myself, Katie, that your relentless cheerfulness in the daily chaos of Westminster politics, let alone BBC coverage of Westminster politics, was one of your greatest uh, strengths and skills. But, but you're now no longer at the BBC, 
looking on from the outside. So, yes, after a very long career at the BBC, I joined when I was 19 and I left when I was 53. And uh, my whole life there, which wasn't my intention, but it was just too interesting to move from. And mostly thanks to you working at Westminster, uh, doing three elections, uh, several leadership challenges, two referendums and COVID, uh, which is why I'm here today for my special interest, um, was incredible. So I'm now looking uh, from the outside into journalism. Um, I'm doing some work in communications advice, reputation management, of which there was a, quite a lot at Westminster. <laughs> well, quite a lot of reputation mismanagement. Well, let's, let's, get, let's get started because we got... One of the things we tried to do on this news meeting is make sure that there's a check on our own groupthink in the tortoise newsroom. You know how much that's an Certainly. issue in any newsroom. Um, and so it's great to have you come in and check on us. But we've also invited people to write in or send in voicemails. And we've got one, John Malarkey wrote in and just said, look, notwithstanding, obviously, the overwhelming need to keep abreast of what's happening in the Israel-Hamas war and what's happening in Gaza, there's also this extraordinary UK story, what's happening in the COVID inquiry and what we learned about what happened in this country between 2020 and 2022 in particular. And so I think that's going to be part of the shape of the discussion. You're pitching that? Yeah, absolutely. And and I have without doubt that it's the most important story in the UK, certainly, uh, this, this week. I think you've got to ask yourself what you've learned and what you haven't learned. What we've learned is what Go, went on behind the scenes in Downing Street and, of course, across Whitehall. A lot of it we actually knew already, but there's a lot that we didn't know and the personalities involved and, of course, how the Prime Minister led or, in fact, didn't lead that terrible event. Well, let's give you, if you're listening, a sense of where we're going. So we're going to talk covid Katie, with you, and together we'll talk COVID. Chloe, what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about whether uh, Israel's response to Hamas in Gaza is proportional militarily, morally, and tactically. Jeevan? I want to talk about AI and, um, in general, how we handle collective threats. Oh, yes. That's the thing, isn't it? You finally get to hold an AI summit, it gets completely eclipsed by everything else that's happening. All right, we'll come to that. But, Katie, why don't we start with the COVID inquiry? So, why do I think this is so important? I think this is the first time that we've really had the full emotion behind the detail of the utter chaos that went on inside uh, government and number 10 and how utterly unprepared this leadership of the country was uh, and how also how the people at the top made the situation much worse. So it comes down to one person, comes down to the prime minister at the time. Boris Johnson and how he did his role as Prime Minister and how wholly unfit he was for that role. There are so many headlines here I could write for it, but I've boiled it down to three issues. So the first one, and for many of us, the most important one, why the country was so unprepared for it, just mm -hmm. completely so unprepared for it. And you might sort of have some sympathy there. Well, this was a, you know, uh, once in a lifetime event, et cetera, et cetera. But once they saw it coming, how much they put their fingers in their ears and decided that it wasn't going to be as bad. And again, that takes you back to the prime minister and his personality. So unprepared for it coming, but also how they mishandled both the growth of it and then, of course, as it continued and thereon. So then there's this man himself, 
Boris Johnson, who in a way, a hiccup of history, meant he was the one that was holding the ball at this particular time. And as I say, put his ears in it. And you heard earlier in the week at the inquiry about he just had that kind of optimistic view. Oh, come on. It's not going to be as bad as everyone thinks. It's going to be okay. We'll be better. We're the best in the world, of course. So, you know, he was unable to make a decision once it did arrive. And of course, everyone knows now that uh, he was known as the trolley inside Downing Street because he veered from one decision to the next and changed his mind, according to the last person that he spoke to. So, you know, he's absolutely the wrong person to have um, been in place for that time. And his director of of communications, Lee Kane, said this extraordinary thing this week. Well, he had the wrong skill set for this crisis, which was quite something to say because, well, it's a bit late for that. But I wonder whether the kind of undoubted winner for the headlines actually is the culture. And so we've heard the government was done by WhatsApp, mm-hmm. um, discuss. Uh, we heard that the profanity, the swearing, the rudeness in meetings, the lack of structures, how um, both political supporters of Boris Johnson and civil servants alike threw stones at him in every way. And I've had a lot of, um, I've read a lot of commentary about that this week. So it doesn't really matter. This what you know, who gives a damn about the swearing, right? They're just words. Actually, for me, that leads to the absolute underlying sense of this problem, which was that it was chaotic. That was allowed to happen because it was chaotic and there was no leadership and no structures. So it's a sense you've got everyone fighting in the corner while this terrible disaster grew. Chloe, what have you thought about it when you've I mean, there have been some pretty incredible It's been shocking, to messages. be honest. Mm. It's been shocking. And for me, it's just, this, this <laughs> sounds pretty basic, but it's just that these people are just awful people. Like, I know that sounds quite, but like Dominic Cummings, he hates everyone. Mm. And it would have been nice to know that some people believed in Boris Johnson, like his own people inside government, but not even they believed in him. So I kind of feel like the country was being conned by everybody even by Boris's own people. I'm really interested in the cultural question because I I kind of wonder what it tells us about the kind of culture that we need in order to make cool decisions in the face of a crisis like this. Um, But the other side of this, I think, is um, the impact on society and the impact on the public's trust in government, uh, which I think was was hugely eroded by the revelations of Partygate. I'm not sure that the COVID inquiry adds anything to that, but I think it really crystallises the feeling that there was a really different atmosphere in Downing Street to, to what the public was going through. Yeah. I think just a quick point, just to pick up on what Chloe said as well, I think what's been really interesting both this week and then actually as I've followed it on Twitter, the anger, you said the word anger and still all these characters, I mean notably Dominic Cummings, had uh, massive capital letters screaming back at the inquiry through Twitter. And it's that sense of he was the only person that had the control and ideas over it, if only everyone would listen. And I I think that's a real lesson. And to your point, I think that's right. I think it's about atmosphere, I think it's about leadership, and I think it's about structures, and, and there weren't any. I mean, Cummings' self-image is based on the idea of him being an iconoclast, isn't, isn't it, and a straight talker, but you wonder to what extent the, the levels of aggression just, just kill off any independent thinking. There's an interesting thing, isn't there, which is, to your first two points, right, which is essentially around unpreparedness and Boris Johnson, we rather grandiosely, like, when the last lockdown ended, held our own little COVID inquiry because it felt like we were just getting kicked into the long grass. And actually, to be fair, there was quite a lot you could figure out really quickly. One of the biggest was optimism bias. Mm -hmm. That Boris Johnson's big problem was 
he was so propelled by his own rhetorical flourish and possibly even personality that he kept giving into this optimism bias. The thing that comes across this week, I think, is that a couple of the other elements that were part of press coverage, you know, Matt Hancock, the clown, or, you know, Boris Johnson, the same, even the, I think it was Patrick Valance's criticism of Eat Out to Help Out COVID, his mm-hmm. criticism of Sunak, that each person fits their own caricature. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, to Jeevan's point, whether or not you've learned, given how closely you were in and out of what was happening in Westminster and Downing Street and Whitehall, whether you feel you've learned something really surprising about the way in which the civil service sees the elected politicians, or whether that's kind of what you've always suspected. Um, I think, to be honest, I think that's one of the things we haven't learned a huge amount about. Because, as you say, I was I was in and out a lot at that time, and certainly on the phone a lot. And, um, you know, it was interesting, sitting from the BBC the week before, or, or thereabouts, may have been a little bit longer than that. We uh, The noise from Downing Street was about closing down the BBC. And uh, as soon as uh, this hit... Uh, a phone call from one of the players involved this week were, um, I received saying, can you help us out? And so uh, that was, you know, it was a really interesting period to be in contact. So just say so that again? You're, you're saying that a week or so before the pandemic started, yes. it was one of those perennial, we're going to have a go at the BBC moments. Yeah. And a week after it was, we need you. Exactly like that. And the, and the language was, you know, was in usual terms. I mean, as you know, James, this is not in any sense unusual. And it's probably the third or fourth time I've been in that situation during the eight years at Westminster. That the language is, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get you. And and it was sort of quite it was quite tough like that actually. And uh, and then yeah, and then it was almost pleading that they desperately needed the BBC to get the message out that this terrible pandemic was going to have to change everyone's behaviour. So, I mean, that was a a huge moment. And from that time on, really, during that period of COVID, um, they relied on the BBC and others, of course, but being the biggest state broadcaster, as you know, we, you know, we were responsible for holding a lot of the public information and tightly. And I mean, there's a lot to be said about that period and, and journalism and how, you know, whether it was the right thing to do to, to carry all those press conferences, etc. Um, what, what do you think on that? Um, I think it would. I mean, I guess I would say this, wouldn't I? Because I was I was so heavily involved. But I think we didn't have a choice at the beginning. And by the beginning, I mean, really quite a long time. What I think happened towards the middle to end was that they started to use them as political broadcasts. And so if you look to, I'm trying to get my years right, to the build up to the May 21 locals, you know, you're, you know, that kind of part of that year, you're into, well, hang on a minute, isn't this a political message? And it was something we talked about very, very clearly, the BBC and um, where those press conferences sat and did they go on BBC One? Did they go on the news channel? Mm. You know, where was their prominence within our output? And, you know, completely understandably, you know, the other parties were fully aware of, of the, the advantage of time they, they were had yeah, you know so so we were, I was sat there at Westminster and, and colleagues were and looking at what they'd said and think well actually I think you're really stepping over the line here so I would be on the phone and and say we're not gonna we're not gonna carry it this is what's going to continue so there was yeah there was that much involvement thanks Katie the COVID inquiry continues 
Chloe, let's go to Gaza. And I, and I know that you've brought the subject of proportionality into play. In some newsrooms, they think you can't even use that word because they're thinking it leads inevitably to an equivalence. But talk through proportionality, how you see it and how you think we should understand it and how we should use it journalistically. Well, so I think it is being misused. So the first thing to say is that it's a legal term. In, in, in a field of war. And, and it's very specific. So proportionality in war is the expected military advantage from an attack versus the potential damage to property in the public in an attack. And what you have to measure is whether or not the military tactics used are excessive. That's it. The problem, though, is what does excessive mean? And there isn't a specific legal definition for what excessive is. And I'm sure the Israeli military now have legal advisers who are sitting there telling them whether or not they're dropping bombs on Jabalia refugee camp, you know, is excessive or not in legal terms. And um, and I think because excessive has not been defined, I think, to be honest, that that is very, very difficult to prosecute somebody and to say that this is not proportional. In so, a military sense. So, so there's legal, mm-hmm. ethical, the ethical, tactical. The ethical for me is how many people who are non-combatants are being killed by your action. So let's take Jabalia refugee camp as an example. Um, on two consecutive days now, the Israeli military have bombed a refugee camp, which is one of the most overpopulated, cramped places on planet Earth. And they've taken out entire blocks. So we're talking about eight, nine buildings at a time in order to get to Hamas terrorists who are either hiding in those buildings or more likely in the tunnels just underneath those buildings. Um, it's, I mean, I won't talk about how many casualties have been in those attacks because it's very, very hard to get a proper grip on them. But we're talking about in the first attack between 50 and 150 casualties to take out one or two men. My question with the moral issue is Hamas uses human shields. This is what the Israelis say. It it seems very, very likely that that's what's happening. Hamas are are hiding in um, civilian areas. If those civilians in front of the Hamas terrorists were Israeli citizens, would Israel be willing to take that many casualties each time? That's the question. Did I tell you about the conversation that I had with David Petraeus this week, with General Petraeus? No, you didn't. So... I interviewed Petres. He's got a book out, Conflict, A History of War from 1945 to Ukraine. Obviously, since its publication, it's now focused on what's happening in the Middle East. So it's pretty extraordinary listening to him, just, you know, as a totally different point of view. His argument is, and he's been in and out of conversations with the Israelis and the IDF, his argument is, in dealing with Hamas, Given the murders on October the 7th, given the hostage taking, given the acts of terrorism, his argument is this is a terrorist army and you have to destroy a terrorist army. You can't contain it. You can't build a wall. You have to destroy it. And what he means by that, and he's quite precise, he says what he means by that is you have to render it inoperative. You have to make sure that it cannot operate and then you have to seek to prevent its reconstitution. And then stick with me for a second. What he then says that requires is you need to go in building by building, floor by floor and room by room in Gaza, 
right, to take out Hamas, and then you need to hold it, and then you need to hold it for long enough that you can constitute a Palestinian authority that itself will prevent the reconstitution of, of Hamas. And when I asked him, I said, but, you know, General Petraeus, that is, sounds like an incredibly difficult, to put it mildly, strategy. He said he thought it was the most difficult military operation since 1945, possibly since Stalingrad, right? But the reason I mention it is that that conception of things from Petraeus, who after all oversaw the surge, and the surge, which if you remember, cost, I think, an estimated 18,000 Iraqi civilian lives in 2007, 13,000 in 2008. That application of that military theory is doing the rounds in Israel completely different to the argument that you're hearing here in London, which is what's the fair treatment, the right treatment, in this case, the, the as you put it, the ethical and legal treatment of Palestinian citizens. I think the gulf between what military people are saying and what you know, legal people or journalists are saying is massive, Chloe. And I don't know how you I think bridge the gap. The problem is that that sounds really good on paper. But look at Afghanistan. And actually, I would I'm argue... I'm not sure it even sounds good on paper, by the way. <laughs> okay. I'm just saying, well, I'm just saying it's say it like a very... It sounds logical on paper, let's yeah. say, which is that I, I, a lot of people have been comparing Hamas to ISIS. And I actually think a better comparison is to the Taliban. Look at what happened in Afghanistan. You know, the Taliban is an Islamist nationalist organization. So is Hamas. They're not looking for a caliphate around the world like ISIS was. ISIS was a, a, an army made or an organization made up of an international group of people. The Taliban and Hamas are both nationalist organizations, both looking at theocracies in their own lands. And um, I think, you know, <laughs> for all respect to David Petraeus, look at the state of Afghanistan. 20 years of fighting the Taliban, they're back in power. And I think if Israel wants to do this, because it's not clear what their end game is, they haven't really talked about we root out Hamas and then what? Nobody has really got to grips. There are various options, but none of them seem to me very good. Um, it's clear that Israel cannot abide the status quo given what has happened to them. It's completely understandable why they feel that this is an existential risk to them. The, the question that I have is if you want to then take control of Gaza in some way and help implement a new government there, you have to have the Palestinians on side. And with the rate of casualties that are going on in, in Gaza right now and with the blockade, with water and food and all the necessities and the hospitals um, at breaking point, you're not winning the Palestinian hearts and minds. There is also a question in all of this. I don't know, Katie, how you think about this. You know, what do you feel in terms of how you deal with, going back to Chloe's kind of main point, proportionality? Is that is that a way of doing on the one hand, on the other hand, coverage that doesn't really account for what happened on October the 7th, does it fail in that sense to be accurate journalism that reports what's happened? Or is proportionality, the way that Chloe frames it, actually quite a useful term in understanding war? It's a really, really interesting question. And I'm, I've been thinking about it a lot because, uh, as you know, James has spent a very long time editing news bulletins um, at the BBC. And what happens is, and completely understandably from one perspective, you've got to have that 
impartial view at the BBC which reflects both sides. But of course, by its very nature, then, you become exactly as you say, on the one hand and the other. And as the story changes, and television news, of course, is driven by picture, then that's a real danger because it depends where the picture goes. So from the beginning, you saw the terrors of what happened in, to the Israelis uh, very quickly balanced off by what was happening in Gaza. Now most of the action, if you like, if I can put it in that horrible term, is in Gaza. Mm. So the whole narrative of debate moves very, very quickly to pictures that, of course, anyone, any human being would feel terrible about and pull your heartstrings. Uh, but I think that's a real danger because you've then got this this equivalent driven by picture. And, and as you know, you, you know, if you're going to try and balance it, you're really then looking at voices which does not communicate the story in TV terms at all. So you're, you, the risk is that you become quite unbalanced about that. Jeevan, what do you think on the proportionality question? Um, I think it can feel a bit abstract, can't it? Sitting here in relative safety in London and talking about legality and proportionality. And on the other hand, um, a country saying this is a question of survival for us. We're fighting to defend ourselves. We, we're the ones who came under attack. But I do think Chloe's framing is critically important. And I think the reason that it's important is that if you take a wider lens on this and look at what happened in Ukraine, the argument that we were making, that the West was making, was founded in human rights, was founded in legality. We talked about Russia invading a sovereign country, Russia committing human rights abuses, having to be held accountable. And then we sort of sat back and wondered why the rest of the world wasn't taking part why the rest of the world was saying, well, hang on, what about Afghanistan? What about Palestine? And I think if you don't have a consistent argument on this, you're not going to have friends. And it's as pragmatic as that. Chloe, I guess what I'm trying to do here is, and I guess what I hope that we're taught us are trying to do, is in a world where a lot of people are shouting at each other, increasingly angrily, can you be a newsroom that just tries to make sense of things, mm. get to a place of greater understanding? Mm. And what I'm trying to work out, genuinely trying to work out, is on the one hand, you have laws, including laws of war, which, as you say, are quite explicit, but often written retrospectively. And a bit vaguely sometimes. <laughs> Maybe a bit vaguely. And then you have generals and military strategists and also politicians with their own constituencies and politics and how do you get to the point where the one side sees the other? And I guess I'm trying to work out whether proportionality is helpful in that or an obstacle to that. Hmm. I think for me, the question, if you were just taking this only from Israel's perspective, say you were not even looking at the moral issue of uh, a civilian population under siege without water, hospitals and lots and lots of children and women dying. If you're just looking at it from Israel's perspective and you're tactical, if I was an advisor to the Israeli government and I was saying, how are you going? To, where's your end game? Where are we going to end up five years from now, three years from now? You've got to in some way in some way, get that Palestinian population on side. And I think at the moment, not only is that getting further and further and further away, that, but I think that the rest of the world that supports the Palestinian cause is in some way getting even more entrenched on this issue. I, I'm still a bit more optimistic than you on that. I do think in the end, if you look at the history of every bout of conflict, 
in the Middle East, there is then a move towards some kind of settlement. And I do still think that in the end, the only way through this is that you find a Palestinian state, a state of the state of Israel and some combination of the two, you know. The only thing, I was going to say the only thing that makes me hope is how intractable we thought Northern Ireland yeah. was at one true, point. True, true. Yeah. Um, I appreciate we should probably take a break and then get back round the table and talk about the moment that we're all run by robots. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jeevan, what is going on in Bletchley Park? So, um, meet our new overlords. Um, <laughs> we... Um, Rishi Sunak got um, 28 countries, including the US and China, together in Bletchley Park to talk about AI and to talk about the threat of AI. And um, my pitch for this is that it was basically a non-event. Nothing happened. And that's why I think you should lead the news. That's why I think it's interesting. Um, unusual argument. Yeah. The, the snorts of laughter. Maybe if you look okay. at the news, by the way, on a daily basis, non-event True. leads news. Yeah. Okay, yes. let me keep pushing this water up the hill. Um, so the basic point here is that we all accept Everyone understands that the world needs to co- cooperate on, on AI. What I think is interesting about Bletchley Park is that there was this vague agreement to cooperate and then very, very clearly lots of countries saying, but we actually have really different positions. Mm. We have really different ideas about what the threat is. The Americans saying, we're going to press ahead and focus on discrimination in the job market and is the algorithm racist and relatively limited kind of degree of regulation like that. Um, the Chinese are saying, we're really, really worried about censorship and control, basically. That's what we care about. And then Europe saying we're broadly concerned about rights, particularly concerned about privacy. We're going to go ahead with legislating on this. 
So nobody really knows what the problem is. Um, it's clear from what happened in Bletchley Park that countries don't want to cooperate with each other. What they're concerned about is pushing ahead as fast as they can on AI. And the other thing that I think is interesting about this is that this is the first time we've had a collective threat where really the power isn't in public hands. The levers aren't in public hands. They're all in private hands. Mm-hmm. And so what really matters is what the companies do. And, you know, uh, Rishi Sunak and other governments have talked about saying we're going to hire lots of AI experts and get them to do these security checks. Hmm. Are you really going to go and go and work for the DOJ rather than Microsoft? Katie, what do you think of this? The Prime Minister's AI summit in Bletchley Park. Um, um, really interesting. And I completely agree with your pitch, by the way. I mean, I think from a political perspective, I think it's got to have been a disappointment. You know, I mean, obviously within Downing Street, they'll think, fantastic. You know, we, we've got some... Uh, really interesting figures to turn up. And Elon Musk, you know, of course, um, to that. But I think in political terms, really, it's one of the, you know, uh, things that Rishi wants to achieve on his journey, potentially out of Downing Street, to look like they've um, done something on the big issues of the day and that he's doing something, which reminds me that when I was thinking about this at the weekend... Are you saying his journey um, out of Downing Street and into Silicon Valley? Oh, Is exactly. that what you're about? <laughs> yeah. The Nick Clegg Quite, model. Exactly, exactly. It reminded me, um, uh, for those of us old enough to remember, of a cartoon um, called Dick Dark. Bastardly and Muttley mm-hmm. that was uh, I watched in the 70s, mm-hmm. which the catchphrase was, do something, mm-hmm. Muttley, to the dog, <laughs> right, as the main character flew along, uh, heading to disaster. And I love that. And like, I know I haven't watched it for 30 years. Why would I remember that? And it came to my head because it was like, do something, anything, you know, about AI, which is kind of what it feels like at the moment, you know. But, but isn't that, I mean, Jeevan, one of the reasons why it's a non-event is that it's so theoretical. You know that problem, we don't know what it is yet? Let's regulate it. Yeah. You know, there is a there is a problem with the way in which they framed this AI summit because there was a completely different approach, which could have been, let's get nations together. Clearly something transformative has happened with ChatGPT. It has huge potential. Why don't we put our heads together about how it could transform public services or education or, you know, research and innovation in science? They didn't talk about adoption. They talked about regulation. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, countries said, well, you regulate in the way you want. We're going to regulate in the way we want because we're in a battle for capital and and talent here. Um, Well, it's up to governments to control and manage risk. And it's up to the private sector to innovate, I think. Um, but it's you can good... set the conditions for innovation, and that's the yeah. point, isn't it? They, they've chosen to go safety rather than innovation. What I would argue is that the US has gone for innovation ahead of safety. And I think that the US is so far ahead on AI, they see anything else as just giving up their lead to other countries. Yeah, that, yeah. That's the perspective here. Chloe, does this interest you at yeah, all? Yeah, I'm really interested. And what I'm interested in is to what extent, because I don't, I know very, very little about this. I'm still trying to get my head around the whole thing like most people. But I'm really interested in to what extent we see this being weaponized in the future. So to what extent are these countries sitting in a room together actually sort of holding back as though this is, a, this is you know, you're looking at my military arsenal and I'm not going to have this regulated at this stage. So the, so the other side of what's been happening in the last few weeks, uh, the last few weeks and months is the US restricting exports of chips to China and the Chinese protesting that this is unfair. Um, so you can clearly see the Americans saying we've got a technological lead. We've got a lead that's founded on hardware. Let's focus on maintaining that. And so that's, that's sitting in the room with them all when they're talking exactly. about regulation together. Katie, if you were um, Rishi Sunak at the end of this 
week and you were trying to judge good week or bad week for you politically, what would you say? Um, well, I think he will be totally in the zone of AI. So he will, you know, how you and kind unaware of, that the COVID inquiry well, you know has how you entirely kind of like sound as a try as a human being, yeah, to push out the stuff that you don't really want to think about. Yes. We're back to optimistic leadership, and and I think he may think by the end of it that he's uh, he's gone to Bletchley Park. He's got quite a few figures in, and to your point, I think you're absolutely right. You know, nothing was decided, but um, you know. They pulled off an event and enough people came. So I think with that, and we'll get to his difficult days on COVID. I don't think we're there yet. Just out of interest, what would you lead the news on this week? The end of the week, what would be your lead? I think um, the COVID inquiry. Chloe? I would go with that as well, I'm afraid. Katie? Do I win? Am I allowed to choose my own subject? No. (laughs) (laughs) What would you choose if it wasn't Um, I think Chloe's. Actually, Katie, yeah. it's not a democracy. <laughs> Chloe and I, uh, Katie and I worked together before she knows how this thing works. I, I, I think it's really hard because I'm consumed by thinking about what's happening in Gaza and the Israel-Hamas war. And also every day there are these new elements of it, you know, that I find it hard to look away from. But I realize that in this COVID inquiry, you've just begun to see... Uh, elements of the way the country really works that we haven't seen. And I think you said something brilliant at the beginning, Katie, about the combination of the emotion and the detail. And that tells you something just different about government. And so I suspect I probably would lead on that and then and, and then Gaza and then um, notwithstanding the brilliant here's a non-event, it can lead the news pitch to even, I think <laughs> Bletchley Park will stay in Bletchley Park. Um, a big thank you, Chloe, and a big thank you, Jeevan, for uh, getting around the news meeting table once again. A big thank you to Katie Searle. It is really uh, great to see you and have this kind of editorial conversation once again. <laughs> of course, if you think there's a story that we missed that should be leading the news, then you can email us on newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. And we'll try to include it in a future episode, or at least do more reporting on it here at Tortoise. You can listen to Chloe's podcast about Mohammed Daif called The Shadow, Hamas's Hidden Commander, by searching for the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. But before we're done, after everything we discussed with Katie about the COVID inquiry, I want to leave you with the words of Helen McNamara, the former Deputy Cabinet Secretary, who gave evidence at the COVID inquiry this week. She described misogyny, lack of planning and hubris in government's pandemic response. I really thought that people wanted to know the right thing to do. I wanted to know the right thing to do. You know, should we be keeping our children off school if they had a cough? Should we be seeing vulnerable people and grandparents? It wasn't, it really wasn't clear. And uh, I happen to have great faith and confidence in that most of the time people will do the right thing. And I felt it was that disconnect that I felt so strongly that actually... If we could just tell people what the right and kind and proper thing to do is, people would do that. And sitting there and saying it was great and sort of laughing at the Italians was just, it just felt completely, well, it felt how it sounds. Tortoise.